This is Steven from Solidarity. The following recording had some connectivity issues in the room, and in the interest of sharing the content of the recordings, we want you all to be aware that we did the best we could with the audio we had. You may notice at points the speaker's voice cuts out or is inaudible. It was nothing with the, their performance but the equipment in the room. Please enjoy. If you would like to support our work, please donate at solidarity-us.org slash donate. Uh, welcome to everybody. I want to introduce myself. My name is Denise Svalen. I'm a physician assistant and I've worked in the community health, neighborhood health center since uh, 1977 in a different part of the state. So that's a topic that I have very much at heart and that uh, I'm hoping that uh, the situation is going to change because it's become more and more difficult for us to practice medicine and to really serve people and uh, and obviously, there's a lot more to talk about than just the healthcare system in terms of health disparity, and that may come up in the discussion at the end. I don't want to take a lot of time right now, uh, but I want to just briefly introduce uh, every speaker, just and they can talk more about themselves if they want to. I don't want to take too much of the time. And everybody's going to have between 15 minutes to, to make their comments. So first, we will have Miranda Pierce talk uh, she's a member of Right Care Alliance in Boston, and she's an insulin-dependent diabetic, and she's going to talk about her challenges getting access to, to insulin and uh, her, her involvement with the, the organization and how to, to make changes and fight what's going on now for people. And that's kind of an example of our healthcare system. Then we would have Dan Luca, who is a Vietnam veteran, an activist, an organizer, and a member and former coordinator of Veterans for Peace, and he's going to talk about his experience with the VA healthcare uh, system and also the challenges that it faces is now, and also talk about how it can be a model for universal healthcare. And then we will have um, uh, Lara Germanis, who is a, a family physician at Cambridge Health Alliance and also a fellow at the Harvard School of Public Health. And, and clinical instructor at the school at uh, Harvard Medical School, and she's going to talk about. I think her focus is going to be on um, the impact of immigration enforcement on immigrant health in Massachusetts. And then finally, we would have Nick Nasser, uh, who is a medical student at Tufts and also a, a master's in public health student, and he's a, he's a leader of a student for National Health Program uh, chapter, local chapter, and he's going to talk kind of end with a, with a talking about, uh, you know, a health plan that may make a big difference for people. And then we will open it up to the discussion. We'll have almost uh, maybe less than half an hour for question and discussion. And it's kind of great that you, it was a great idea to have people introduce themselves. So, yeah, I would like to... Sure, thank you so much. Um, yeah, my name is Miranda. I... I'm a type 1 diabetic and I'm insulin, so I'm insulin. That was like for me over a different person and what that's like for me now as well. Um, I, growing up, wasn't, you know, didn't have a lot of financial resources, but family made just a little bit too much money most of the time because they worked at all to be able to qualify. So that resulted in physicians giving me as it started, the price started to climb. Probably when I was about seven years old, I mean, it just skyrocketed over my middle school and high school. When I was in high school, my mother got a part-time job teaching, and I lost, I, I lost all state medicine. And so, as a result, I 
um, I had switched to the homeschool basically. I pretty much dropped out of school for all my meds. But even though I did that, um, I still couldn't afford my insulin. So I would, between work, I would clinic hop. Um, and I would go to different clinics and hope to have something available. Usually it would take two or three times to be able to get the insulin. For anyone, it, it, so raise your hand if you are kind of familiar with type 1 diabetes. Okay, so for those who are not, um, type 1 diabetics require insulin constantly. It's not like you can take one shot a day and then you're good. Um, it is a constant need that all bodies have. Um, and so type 1 diabetics typically take two types of insulin. So that's a long acting that, that is really smooth and it covers like the whole course of the day. And then you take a shorter acting insulin, which you take for meals and as needed, right, to maintain stable blood sugar. So when I would when I would clinic hop, um, most of the insulin that I would get in samples from clinicians would be the short-acting insulin, so the stuff that you, eat, you use when you're eating um, or covering it when your blood sugar gets high. Um, unfortunately, they often did not have the long-acting insulin in stock, and so I would go long periods of time without that. And so that can result in long-term complications. What I would have to do is I would have to wake up once or twice in the middle of the night to correct my high blood sugars as a result. And so, you know, ongoing like sleep deprivation, anxiety, stress, not to mention I was pretty much not going to school at the time. So um, somehow I, I wrestled my way into college and <laughs> um, still continuing this life. But um, so that is, that is some of what can happen. Um, in trying to access insulin. Um, I didn't have insurance through college, so it was the same same thing. I would, you know, attempt to pay for what I could, um, and then the rest I would just go to clinics and hope they had it. Um, I did have insurance for most of the time after college when I had full-time work. Um, unfortunately, anytime you either lose a job or switch jobs or try to go to grad school, there is always some sort of lag time that, that occurs um, in which you're not going to have access to that medication. Um, currently, my insulin alone would cost me almost $1,000 a month. Um, and I have returned to grad school. Um, unfortunately, due to um, circumstances beyond my control, uh, last year I lost my health insurance. Um, I was able to stay in my graduate program, but due to um, something as simple as registration being delayed, I lost my health insurance for the entire year. Um, I qualified for emergency um, mass health status for exactly one week in January. Um, and then after that, it was deemed that I did not qualify because I might have access to health insurance, which was not available to me any longer. Um, and so that was about all I pretty much just gave up because I graduate program and I didn't have time to deal with it. So um, thankfully I've been connected with the Right Care Alliance for a while now. And um, several of their members are diabetics and they sometimes have their insulin or um, will bring me back insulin or have their spouse go to Canada and you know I will pay for that rather than pay for the $900. I want to also talk about some of our conceptions of things we might hear um, through media. I think by now all of us realize 
how pervasive this is. Um, we realize that people do die from this, from um, not being able to access medicines. Um, that's pretty clear. But then I think when we hear those, those big things and those jarring things, like someone has died from insulin rationing, I think what happens is we actually miss a lot of the story. Um, there's a number that's floating around recently that's one in four patients. And everyone knows that that can you know, have short-term and long-term health consequences. Um, we also know that several people have died within the past couple of years from directly from rationing insulin. What we don't think about, though, is that um, three people in 2017, three in 2018, and four so far in 2019. Uh, and most of those have um, aged out of their, their parents' plans, um, 26. And what we don't think about is that none of those people admitted to rationing their insulin. So we have this number that one in four rationed their insulin, but you know what does that three and four look like? What do they think rationing is? When I was in high school, of course I didn't ration my insulin. I took my insulin all the time, but I was actually not taking half of the insulin that I needed. So what does that mean to people, and how do we get those stories um, to understand the full picture of how pervasive this is? And so Right Care Alliance is partnering physicians and other providers with patients and getting those stories and making meaning of them in a public sphere. So I would encourage anybody who is really interested in knowing how this affects people on a deep level and then what to do with that, whether that's actions, um, whether that is um, writing to legislators, um, definitely connect with me. I have a pen and sheet here in some forms um, and we can talk Okay. Thank you. My name is Dan Luther, and I am a Vietnam veteran, 1969-1970. Um, before we start talking about the Veterans Administration health care system, care system, there's something I know say. Emmy, myself, we were delegates at the uh, Democratic State convention a few weeks ago. Jared was out there also. So we listened to six roughly hours of speeches and presentations by different politicians uh, on and on and on. And uh, as a veteran, I need to say there was not one, not one sentence about 18 years of we have been involved in Afghanistan and Iraq. Not one sentence in six hours of political speeches. And I'm sorry, but I have to say, what the fuck? What the fuck? You know, 18 years, the longest wars this country has ever been in. Six trillion dollars that has been spent on those wars. So 18 years, there are kids, there are men and women, um, but there are men and women that are being deployed now that weren't even born when this war started. And that brings us to the subject of 
these people are going to need health care for the rest. So I just want to go on on this a little bit. Six trillion dollars. What would we have done in the United States with six trillion dollars? Please do not say we could have given more money, tax cuts to the 1%. A lot of other things we could have done. 2020 defense budget, $1,780 billion. That's just the defense budget. That doesn't count what the wars are costing us. And add to that $217 billion for the Veterans Administration. Costs we've incurred in human lives in the wars that we're fighting. So that's like a trillion dollars a year, folks, that we're spending on defense spending and the VA, the cost of those wars. This doesn't include the cost of the war or other things like Somalia or Black Ops or CIA or State Department, Homeland Security. These aren't wrapped into, into this trillion dollars. And I guess I just end this part in saying at least more state than it was in September? Are there less terrorists now threatening us in, in September 2008 healthcare? I've been, a, I've been enrolled in the VA healthcare since 2001. I hear people, I tell people that, and the response I get a lot of times is, I'm really sorry because that's what's been put out in our media, how bad a care it is. Let me tell you, I have not had better care in my life since I was a kid in, East, in a small rural town in eastern Washington, and our doctor used to come to the house. And it's the best health care anywhere. 80, more than 80% of the veterans in this country love the VA. So don't believe what you read in the papers. Um, also, as it's, been, as it's been described, it's a model for universal health care. It works. It works really, really well. It works so well, they need to privatize it. <laughs> $217 billion budget is awful enticing to the private health care system for-profit healthcare. The Mission Act, there we go, I mean, they had another privatization. Uh, basically, if you are more than 30 miles or it takes longer than 30 days. Sorry, that's okay. Did I say it wrong? No. <laughs> <laughs> if you're more than 30 miles or more than 30 days then you can go to a private insurance, private doctor. Um, and so what that is doing is creating death by a thousand cuts to the VA. It's defunding the VA. A lot of things have been cherry-picked, like things that can be done cheaply, bad has a lot of costs to manage, like a 
hearing aids, hearing testing, um, colonoscopies, all of that. But basically what's happened, they funded this thing out of the VA. So they're going to start taking money out of the VA in the Veterans Hospital, which right now are 44,000 employees understaffed, $10 billion underfunded, $50 billion on renovations and, and maintenance that need to be done on the facility. So what we're going to do is we're going to start the mission act. So we're going to start taking more money out of the VA, which is not going to allow them to do the health care that they're currently doing, the levels they're currently doing, because they're going to have less money. Um, people here in Boston probably have seen some of the articles that Spotlight, part of the globe, is, has uh, published on the VA. Bedford, that's my VA. A wonderful, fantastic, incredible health care there. 2001. Um, but I, the VA, first of all, is under a microscope. Anything that goes wrong, you have investigators, put it out to the whole world. And I, I called the, the reporter that did this, and I started talking about funding and all of that. I'm an investigative reporter. I don't write about problems of the VA. I just want to talk about this incident and that incident. And if the head of the VA brings up those, then maybe I'll talk about them, but not until. So soon we're going to have facility closings or service to happen. And then there goes our model. There's nothing more you can point at. You can't point at it. Ask veterans, you know, how oh, is this? This is fantastic. I also ask if MGH or Beth Israel are under the same scrutiny, transparency, and microscope that the VA is. Um, also, most people don't know it, but the VA only handles service-connected disability. It's not every veteran. So you have to qualify by having a service-connected disability. Uh, all the other veterans are not covered by them. So one of the things that's been proposed in the privatization of the VA is that the RAND Corporation start doing the initial interviews for eligibility for qualifying for the VA. So as a Vietnam veteran, it took me from 1970 to 2001 to go to the VA to tell them my story of why I have, it took me 15 years to figure out I did have PTSD. It took me another 15 to admit I did, and then it took me some time to go to the, uh, the Veterans Administration and tell my story. So now, there, you know, one thought is to have the RAND Corporation be that first person you tell that why, what happened? 
And so you have a person that checks boxes that has the interest of private health care. Listening to that story and deciding, I'm sorry, I really upset about it. Especially when we got we got veterans that are doing two, three, and four tours. I did one tour. It will affect me the rest of my life. People doing two, three, and four tours. And one other thing that I just want to point out, when I hit Vietnam, when I stepped off of a plane, I had 365 days left. The next morning when I woke up, I had 364 days left. I knew exactly when I was leaving. To the day. These guys are leaving by unit. They tell you, hey, you're going to leave. You're going to be exiting Iraq in December. Well, you're, as a combat vet, your whole mind goes to December. Whatever day that is in December that I can leave my family out of this place. Then December comes and now they say, well, we couldn't get your unit over here. It's going to be March. It's going to be, it's going to be March before you leave. And this goes over and over three or four times. And that's um, so, the least we owe these men and women that we had endured this situation because we're not out on George Bush said when we, after 2001, when he was asked, what could we do? I don't know how many of you remember that, but he said, go shopping. What can you do <laughs> Yeah. Like, oh my God. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so, a couple things in closing. One, I'd like to say that we're not hardwired for war. As a combat veteran, I'd really like to say to all of you, through my experience and the experience of other combat veterans, we're not hardwired for war. We're not hardwired to kill other people. And we're not hardwired to kill people in mass amounts or at all. That's why we have PTSD. That is a hard time. So, in closing, I would like to share a quote from Major General Smedley D. Butler, the most decorated soldier in history. Two medals of honor. <clears throat> this is from a speech in 1933. I spent, and I quote, I spent 33 years and four months in active military service as a member of this country's most agile military force the Marine Corps. I served in all commissioned ranks from second lieutenant to major general. And during that period, I spent most of my time being a high class muscle man for big business, Wall Street, and the bankers. Short, I was a racketeer. A gangster for gambling. 
1933 by the most decorated soldier. So in ending, I just, I guess I just want to say one. Thank you for your service. So many people say that. And I know where it's coming from. Coming from the heart, it's very hard for that. But I joined in the Army in 1968 as a poor son of farm workers in Washington. I thought I'd found a path to college and also wanted to be patriotic to my country. I found out that I'd been lied to, afraid, fighting, fighting. So I came back ashamed of my service. I didn't tell anybody that. So, as a combat veteran, many that I've talked to, you know, you want to say something about the people that have endured what we, as Americans, have sent them to do, or have not stopped what they were being sent to do. I would suggest you say, welcome home. I'm really glad you're home. I feel my service has come after I got home, trying to educate people on the real cause of war. I took a bigger step in reclaiming my service after joining Veterans for Peace. Totally reclaimed my service. When I had a chance to finally stand on the right side of my conflict at Standing Rock with 4,000 other veterans. And we received the heartfelt appreciation to the nation. First time in U.S. history that the U.S. military has come to the Native Americans. <laughs> I am a family physician. I do a lot of work. Um, in, two, in 2017, I started an organization. Um, we're now a group of over 400, mostly medical professionals around the state, also lawyers and um, community members in the organization, um, to basically make our health system feel more welcoming to immigrants. And this is a, as a result of noticing that Trump was elected and then with all of the anti we really were noticing that people were not showing up to visits in our clinics and that numbers were, were down. And this also was, you know, as part of the undercurrent of fear. And so um, I just want to kind of ground these comments within a context. Why is it important to think about immigrants, immigration? Um, and, you know, that's because our economy is paper. What does it mean for our economy to be? has to do with exploitation. Because immigrants are vulnerable because of their status, they are afraid to advocate for their rights in the workplace and home, and therefore they can be paid less than other workers and, and, and are forced to endure um, unsafe working conditions because when they complain or if they complain, they deportation. That lowers the bar for everyone. So it's a really important um, thing to kind of think about in the context of our economy. Um, and so I'm just going to outline a few of the policy changes that have happened in the last couple of years that have made things more difficult and 
threaten the health of immigrants and their ability to access public services. Um, but this is not, of course, to say that the Democratic administrations have been so friendly to immigrants. In fact, the most friendly recent administration to immigrants, Reagan, who, who passed a huge amnesty law. Um, and Obama, in a single year, was, was actually deporting more people than President Trump. Um, but there, you know, the, the white supremacist rhetoric of this administration is definitely precedented and, um, and so a few days into his, his presidency, um, actually passed a, an executive order really five days after, um, and that was broadening the deportation priorities. So previously under the Obama administration, deportation, uh, people who were targeted for deportation were more people that had been. Um, you know, certainly there were definitely people that were swept up in that big dragnet, but this um, broadening of the priorities kind of meant that anybody who was here legally became a target. And so when everyone's a target, no one's a target. And that just gives really fast um, uh, leeway to immigration judges to deport whoever they want to. So you see single parents um, being deported and their U.S. citizen children end up in the um, and so, you know, we think a lot about these family separations that have been happening, but it's important to notice that the family separations are not just happening down at the border of Texas. The other thing that was part of that same executive order was encouraging police collaboration with ICE. So when, um, and can, um, so there are these two, I'm sorry, um, 57G agreements that they have, uh, that ICE has with state police, and that literally deputizes the police to be trained as uh, officers to. So can anybody here think of a reason why that might be an issue? Yeah, from the audience, please. Local, your local police is enforcing immigration law. We're not gonna call them. So, and this is, you know, a huge issue, especially in the case of domestic violence, where um, victims will be threatened by their assailants, you know, oh, I'm going to call ICE on you, or that actually may be even part of the harassment. Um, and so, you know, and, and furthermore, okay, you're not going to call the police, but you're also not going to call one if you're having an emergency, because, you know, the police car will come along. And so it just ends up with people being really fearful um, and af after that, um, he also you know, dropped the refugee cap, initially, which had been 110,000 to 30, and now most recently down to 18,000 per year. Um, and this is, of course, in the context of the largest displacement crisis, um, the Muslim ban, which we're all, I think, aware of. Um, and then, of course, these family detentions and child, uh, family separations and child detention. Um, and I will say, uh, you know, child separations, these prolonged child detentions are really disastrous in, in every way, of course, that you can imagine. But furthermore, that um, children, as part of their um, development, really need to feel safe, stable, addiction. And when they don't, and when they are repetitively faced with these um, toxic stressors, that can have a severe impact on the development brain which can impact them for their entire life, their ability to do well in school, their ability to get work later. And actually, there's evidence that it can cause epigenetic change. So this is a really tremendous um, thing that our government has done. We, we still don't understand what it will do. Um, 
large raids like that in August of this year um, can also have a tremendous impact. And we actually already know there's a growing field of public health literature that demonstrates the impact of um, fear on people, on immigrant health. So one, one really um, good example that frequently is cited is a large raid that happened in Iowa in 2009. Um, a meat packing plant was raided um, and ICE officers stormed um, a meat processing plant, and um, there was actually a Black Hawk helicopter involved, um, and they were militarized, they were um, and armed, and um, the raid was televised all across the state of Iowa. And the following day, across the state, many Latino children did. And there was a study that was done <laughs> that demonstrated that across the entire state of Iowa, following nine months, the rate of low birth weight babies increased significantly babies born to Latino. That's across an entire state, the impact basically seeing something having happened up to. So this is, I mean, we are, you know, again, still going to reap the impacts of these really fearful policies. And you know, there are plenty of studies that demonstrate furthermore what happens to children when they have been separated from their parents um, and the mental health um, difficulties that they face. Uh, and, you know, but on the other hand, um, what happens when you do give people access to citizenship? There's actually also a study that took mothers um, who received DACA and paired them with women that um, were just kind of their birth date was right after the, the DACA cutoff, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals cutoff. And the children born to mothers that have DACA status actually have a 50% reduction in adjustment disorders. So just status and you know giving people status really can make a difference. Um, and then um, most um, and, uh, kind of the most uh, major moving target here has been the attack on immigrants use of public benefit. This has been kind of an ongoing threat of the Trump presidency, which started uh, after he'd been in office again for about like a couple of weeks. There was a memo that was leaked that suggested that immigrants who were receiving public benefits would eventually be deported or um, you know, would just not be permitted to get public benefits. Ultimately, there was a rulemaking change um, that was passed. There was a public comment period. This was so we generated 230,000 public comments against what's called the public charge rule. And I'll just explain a little bit about what it is and what's happened now, because the rule has finally been published. Um, so public charge is, um, is a kind of test that people are put to when they apply for a visa or a green card. And the idea is that the government does not want to give a visa or a green card to someone who might become a public charge, a charge of the state. So this previously was defined as somebody that had accepted cash benefits, but that's something that most immigrants are not even eligible for, or somebody who had been, say, um, institutionalized at the government expense, say, in a long-term institutionalization. Um, and so what the Trump administration has now passed, and this rule will take effect unless it is blocked by litigation, which it might well be, um, but it is, it is due to take effect um, on October 15th. Um, and anybody who has received um, certain public benefits, such as adults who has, have received non-emergency Medicaid, so that's not like Mass Health Limited or Health Safety Net, but uh, people who've got non-emergency Medicaid, not for pregnant women, um, but anyone over the age of 21 who has received that, who has received SNAP, for instance, um, or public housing, um, can potentially be denied a green card or a visa on that basis. Um, 
Um, the other thing that can happen is that people will look at their income or their age, and they can also be denied if these are a brief part of them. So somebody over the age of 65 or under the age of, um, of 18 can also be denied that these are a green card uh, because they're too young or too old, or if they have a medical condition and don't have health insurance, actually. That's heavily weighted against them. Or if they make income that's less than 125% of So basically a, a way to kind of try and keep out low-income immigrants from global Um So... Uh, you know, if this, this rule has been publicized in a way that has caused so much fear that it's already had a chilling impact, um, from the very beginning, people were dropping out of WIC. WIC isn't even part of one of the benefits that's considered, but people are just kind of dropping out of benefit program. Refugees are um, uh, not part of the people that are impacted by this, but refugees are dropping health benefits. Um, and there was a study by the Urban Institute that reported that one out of five adults in low-income the, the rule has not taken effect yet. It's not going to be backwards-looking. It's going to be forward-looking. So right now, people want to drop their benefits because they're afraid they'd be denied a visa they could, and they wouldn't be attacked by the rule, but people are already dropping their benefits. So this part of the narrative that Trump puts forth is that immigrants are coming to this country and using our benefits, and that's what he's trying to stop. But the irony is that actually the opposite is taking place. So immigrants who come to this country tend to be healthy, working-age people. They pay into the social security system, they pay taxes, and because they are not eligible for a lot of benefits, they actually don't withdraw from the Medicare pool. And so they actually are subsidizing our healthcare. And there's, there's a study that demonstrates the actual dollar amount that they do subsidize things. Um, and so um, I'll just finish by saying, you know, what can we do about some of these things? Um, and, you know, uh, I would recommend, first of all, supporting um, trust acts. Laws like the, um, the Safe Communities Act, which is being considered again by the Massachusetts legislature, this would try and discourage uh, local police from operating with ICE, um, and is a really and it would also require police to tell people um, that they have the right to speak with an immigration attorney. ICE, there's no such thing as being read your Miranda rights when ICE. Um, and um, then the other thing I would recommend is uh, supporting the Work and Mobility Act, which would give driver's licenses um, to all qualified Massachusetts residents regardless of their immigration status. Right now, immigrants can't get a, um, undocumented immigrants can't get um, an act to ensure equitable coverage for children. The Cover All Kids Act is another bill that this would ensure that all children have access to health insurance, regardless of their immigration. So right now, um, children of undocumented, undocumented children do not have access to mass health um, in, in the way that um, other children do, and this would basically broaden um, the, the number of children that are covered by CHIP. Um, and then nationally, the Dream and Promise Act, HR6, um, provides permanent legal protections and a path to citizenship for DREAMers, the recipients of DACA, and um, recipients of temporary protective service and deferred and forced departure. So TBS recipients, there's 12,000 of them, and that's um, a number of people from different countries have had their um, status under threat. Um, so, and then, you know, in general, it's important for those who are working in the healthcare profession to think about the way that our um, health system is thinking about by putting up signage 
by having policies for our system. Also by educating ourselves and each other and encouraging people to consult with them. Drop their benefits left and right because they may actually be eligible for public. So my name is Nick Nasser. I'm a second year medical student at Tufts uh, pursuing a degree uh, MD, MPH. Uh, so today I'm going to give you a little bit of an intro on single-payer healthcare, focusing on single-payer. Um, and I know you probably have some knowledge about it, so some of it's a little bit of a review probably for some of you, some of it uh, might be brand new. Um, and then I'm going to go to a little bit into kind of hot-button uh, candidates, what they're, what they're proposing and some of the differences. Uh, so generally, what is single-payer? What does Medicare for all mean, and how is it different from what we have currently? Um, so single-payer is defined as a national health insurance program. It's synonymous with Medicare for all. The system in which we have a single public agency that organizes the financing, not the delivery of health care. Um, so under this kind of system, all U.S. residents would be covered for all medically necessary care. That includes your doctor, your hospital, preventative, long-term care, vision, dental, uh, prescription drugs, all of it. So how would this be different than what we have now? Um, mainly right now we have a very fragmented system. Uh, we have Medicare, Medicaid, we have the VA, we have uh, employer-based programs, we have the individual market. This system would be totally different because we'd be essentially taking the scaffolding of the current Medicare program and expanding it to everyone. Um, so this would be essentially paid for with those current funds we have plus additional taxes. Um, based on the ability to pay. Um, we would, in the end goal, be forming an everybody in, nobody out pro, uh, payer program. And this allows us to balance the risk widely across this entire pool and it would save us enormously in money. Um, so many of you have probably heard Bernie Sanders in the debates and otherwise say that, um, you know, the U.S. spends two times per capita more than the average of other developed countries and this is absolutely accurate. Um, so why are we spending so much more in the United States than other countries? It's not necessarily because we have better care. In fact, we have many cases where we have much worse outcomes on average, and that could be a totally other lecture. I'm not going to get too much into the details of that, but why are we spending so much more? Majorly, it's that we have massive administrative costs. Um, for hospitals to navigate the extremely complex payer system, a multi-payer system, they have to hire armies of accountants to be able to navigate it. So. Um, in addition, we also have a culture um, in this country of basically treating healthcare like a for-profit business. Um, there are very few regulations when it comes to the negotiation of healthcare costs uh, and prescription drugs. And thinking about just basic economics, there's this term called elastic demand. You know, if someone says to you, how much money would you pay to save your life? You know, that, that value goes up infinitely. So that's why in the United States today we're seeing um, I think the stat was now about 40% of patients post-cancer diagnosis are spending all of their assets within four years. So, you know, what is the value of your life? It's everything you have. And that's why, you know, it's so expensive in the United States. So, looking towards setting up a single-payer system, why it would be different, uh, we would essentially be saving, you know, over $500 billion in these administrative costs. Uh, this is just reducing the paperwork. Uh, we'd be replacing our inefficient for-profit multi-payer system with a more streamlined non-profit um, public payer system. For patients themselves, uh, premiums would disappear. Patients would no longer have financial barriers like co-pays and deductibles. 
Um, and then we would also get rid of the whole in-network, out-of-network out of, uh, issue. So right now, let's say you have Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Insurance, and you go see your doctor at X clinic, uh, and you say, you know, I really want to see this doctor over at MGH. Oh, sorry, they're out of network. You can't go get a referral to them. So you either have to change your insurance or change your primary care doctor. All of that's gone. It's free choice of doctor, free choice of hospital that we're working towards. Um, so I'm not sure if any of you saw um, this recent headline from the Wall Street Journal, but um, they reported this past week that the cost for the employer-provided health coverage plan for a family is now over $20,000 a year. That's up 5% from last year. Um, so, you know, that to me seems absolutely uh, ridiculous and unattainable. Um, but basically, why do we have these expensive employer plans? It goes back to a long history of, um, you know, post-World War II, people were coming back from the war and there was a huge demand for labor and so companies were hiring people, offering them enticing benefits and one of those benefits was um, a health insurance plan. You know, at the same time, a lot of European countries were developing very primitive early forms of nationalized healthcare, but, um, you know, there were many, many instances in the 20th century that, um, Legislators tried to pass single-payer health care, um, but one of the main oppositions to it was the doctor lobby, the AMA. Um, and even to this day, they've still really fully uh, not gotten behind single-payer. Um, so we've had a you know, history that it, seemed, it has seen so far that single-payer has been unattainable. Um, and why does this employer-based system not work? There are many reasons. I think largely it's unstable. It's far more expensive, and it leaves too many people out. So as you see here with the um, strikers for the United Auto Workers, um, recent reporting uh, when, the, um, when the strike first started was that a lot of the workers were fearful that day or their health plans would be canceled if they went on strike. Fortunately, GM did reverse that decision, but it still faces the threat. If you're a union worker and you have this platinum plan that all the candidates keep talking about that unions have, you know, if you want to go on strike and demand, um, you know, demand better wages, they could threaten to take away your health care. Other things might include if you lose your job, if you lose your health care plan, if you have your employer-based plan. If you get divorced from a spouse who you get your insurance through, you lose your health care. Commit the crime of turning 26, year old, 26 years old, you, you know, lose your health care from your parents, uh, which is now leading to an epidemic of young people in their late 20s dying from a lack of insulin. Um, you know, if you quit your job and you want to start a small business, you know, the free market economics of I have a good idea, I want to start a small business, too bad you lose your health insurance plan. Um, so it doesn't make sense in terms of labor mobility for me. And then, um, you know, we're really stuck in a big mess. And so next I'd like to look at a little bit about how other, how other programs or other plans have worked in other countries. Um, so you have four basic models for health insurance. The multi-payer system at the bottom is what we have. We have mixed funding and mixed delivery. So we have, as I said, the employer-based plans, individual market plans that are subsidized by the government, Obamacare, we have the VA, which operates mostly like the top, uh, the beverage model. The VA is public funding and public delivery. We have Medicare, which is a national health insurance, like the second one, that is for people who are over 65, and Medicaid, which is a kind of combo of state and federal funding um, for people who are under a certain income threshold. So looking at um, the beverage model, the major example is the UK. Um, the difference between that and single payer is that in this case, it's um, public funding and public delivery. The hospitals and the doctors are government employees. 
National health insurance is more like what Canada has. It's public funding, one payer for private delivery, private hospitals, private doctors. Um, the Bismarck model is more so what Germany has. It's a bit of a mixed delivery system, so it's mixed funding and private delivery. Um, but in this case, it's extremely highly regulated. So all of the insurance companies in Germany are mandated to be nonprofit. Um, and the government does set largely the price across the board in their healthcare system. So although they do have employer-based programs, um, the government plays a heavy role in regulating that market. And anyone who falls out of the gas, aka is not in that employer-based market, is covered by a government plan. So where are we now? In the United States, we have two Medicare for All bills, one in the House and one in the Senate. The one in the House is uh, authored by Pramila Jayapal, H.R. 1384, and in the Senate we have S. 1129 by Bernie Sanders. So I'd like to touch on some of the major differences between these two bills, what they get right and what they both somewhat get wrong. Um, so H.R. Uh, 1384 is in the House, um, and this bill covers all medically necessary care that includes vision, dental, hearing, mental health, reproductive and abortion care, and long-term care. Importantly, there are no co-pays, no premiums, and no deductibles. Um, and the way it's financed is a little bit um, more like what Canada does. And I'll get into this in more detail in the next slide, but they use global, budget, global operating budgets to hospitals and separate budgets for capital expenses. So if you want to you know, do a renovation to your hospital or buy that new big fancy MRI machine, there's a separate budget for that. Um, it um, sets out a national drug formulary and allows the um, Health and Human Services Department to negotiate drug, uh, drug prices and override patents uh, where there are cases of price gouging. Um, it also overrides the Hyde Amendment, and the transition period is only two years for the House bill. Um, so what is a global operating budget? The best example I can give you is in our current system, we pay for healthcare um, through our Medicare system via capitation. So for every heart attack, for example, Medicare will pay you $100,000 paid to that hospital. So um, you know, if the care of that patient ends up being more than $100,000, the hospital has to eat the cost. So it, it says to the hospital, you know, for every heart attack you get, we're going to give you this amount of money. So try and you know, not spend so much, try and not do so much, or at least try and take care of that patient so much that you don't have to surpass that. The incentive is that um, you, know, you don't want to have that patient readmitted. Uh, you want to do the best care up front. But in this case, it sets out more of a, for the nation, we have a pool of money set aside. So for all heart attacks in the country, we set aside a pool of $20 million. So that really puts the incentive on the hospitals to prevent heart attacks, not to get that cha-ching, cha-ching $100,000 every time there's a heart attack, but say, hmm, there's a limited amount of money, so if we work towards preventing heart attacks, we won't have to uh, eat the cost so much. This is what they do in Canada currently. Um, so going to the Senate bill, uh, authored by Bernie Sanders, some of the major differences are um, there are co-pays for some brand name drugs under his plan. The cap is at $200 per year. Uh, interestingly, looking at um, some of what Warren has put out, her cap is at $6,000 a year. Um, so that is a, a major difference between their two plans, even though she's pretty much fully endorsed his plan. Um, Bernie's plan is under a four-year transition period. And his, um, his bill doesn't have this global operating budget um, and separate capital uh, budget for uh, special projects. Um, his, pro his bill basically leaves the current way we finance Medicare in place. 
Uh, and it still maintains these, quote, value-based payment systems or other pay-for-performance schemes. An example of this would be, let's say, you're a provider and all of your patients are super, super healthy. Um, they have great blood pressure values. You get a little bit of a, a bonus for that. Uh, and that really incentivizes doctors to kick off their sick patients and only have a really healthy patient population. Um, so his plan doesn't really uh, dig into that too much. And what they both get wrong is that they both don't address the issue of for-profit health institutions. So that could be a dialysis center, a nursing home, a hospital. All of these centers uh, we know are providing more expensive care. So they're charging the system more and they're often providing worse care. So overall, um, you know, the one proposal could be that we could just buy out these institutions and we would probably save more money in the long run by buying them out rather than letting, uh, giving them the payment over time that is for worse care and more expensive. Um, so looking at the candidates, they, they kind of fall into three barrels. Uh, we know Bernie and Warren are pretty much in the Medicare for all or bust. Um, and many of, the other, many of the others are in either they oppose Medicare for all but would try and expand coverage of Medicare and then Medicare for all but would accept Medicare for some. So looking at um, just, I'm going to go into just two candidates specifically that have, that kind of um, encapsulate the, the major debates of what is a public option and why is it different from single payer. Um, so Joe Biden's plan is essentially keep the Affordable Care Act in place, keep private insurers in place, and then um, have this public option plan, which is essentially a buy-in to Medicare. So anyone at any age can buy into Medicare on the market. Um, you know, why is this bad? Um, it doesn't cover everyone. The beauty of a single-payer system is that it's everybody in, nobody out. If, you know, we, have, we maintain this fragmented system with the public option here and your private insurance here, you don't get those cost-saving benefits. Um, it keeps the whole essence of um, profit incentives. So those private insurance companies that will, maintain, uh, will continue to exist, they'll still be operating on a, um, a profit-seeking nature that further complicates the system. And um, there's also a fear that potentially this public option, once we uh, put Medicare on the market, it could be privatized. Um, so, you know, legislators might say, oh, a private company might be better off running this Medicare system. So it, it just leaves the door open to that. Um, and then going towards Kamala Harris's plan, which I've read through it, it's super confusing. It boils down to Medicare Advantage for all. Uh, who's heard of Medicare Advantage before? So Medicare Advantage is basically, in its essence, um, public funding for private health insurers. So when you turn 65, you have the option of buying a Medicare Advantage plan. Um, often it's actually cheaper to the consumer. It's often cheaper to the consumer, um, so people are very enticed to buy these plans. But overall, the Medicare Advantage insurers are spending 10 times the amount per beneficiary that uh, it's used to just pay out for Medicare, the regular program. And then looking at their total budget, they, the percentage of their budget they spend on profit um, for their insurance pool is at 15%, and that's eight times higher than what's used for administrative costs for Medicare alone. So it's basically the privatization of, of Medicare itself. Um, so her plan isn't Medicare for, for all, unfortunately. So what can we do? Um, if you want to learn more, uh, check out the Physicians for a National Health Program website. They have a ton of resources on how you can connect to your legislator, how you can, they have a little letter writing tool I think is great. Um, and you can find out on there, you know, which legislators are supporting these single-payer single, single bills. Um, and I think just getting involved in the campaigns is really important, having the dialogue with the candidates. Um, if you can become a delegate, that's a great thing too. So I guess we'll open it up now for more questions.
so many instances in people's lives where their health insurance is disrupted. Um, you know, you lose your job, you try and uh, create a small business, you turn 65, you turn 26. So there are all these rough transition periods. So to imagine uh, a country to transition to Medicare for all. And almost all Medicare, all medical institutions are used to dealing with Medicare. Exactly. It's, Any other comments? What are the pros and cons of the British system versus the and you know we're following you know Medicare for all right now, which is um, public funding, private delivery. Is would you say that's better or worse than national health service? So I'm not a huge expert on the NHS, but from my understanding is why I why I think fighting for single care is a much more attainable goal than fighting for a totally socialized medicine would be. Um, that it would involve you know, every medical institution becoming a public institution, every doctor becoming a, um, a public servant, um, government employee. I think that's a massive undertaking. Maybe you know, somewhere in the future, um, and the VA is a great example of it, but uh, the issue is now we have institutions that have been around for hundreds of years um, to then take 
make them part of the government, it, it's a much more um, serious undertaking. In terms of how they operate, um, you know, I can't say too much as to why a fully, um, fully public system is better or worse. But in terms of how we could potentially get there, it seems much more of an obstacle. So. Um, does PNHP have a policy for non-citizens? For what? Non-citizens. Non uh, if this inclusion mm -hmm. policy. So uh, I'm not too sure about PNHP, PNHP, but in terms of the both bills do extend coverage to undocumented. Well, thank you also. That's what I understood was um, why the AMA got on board with all the positions I know are other patients would be. So that would be my, my understanding is partially that, um, you know, there's just been this myth that it, that doctors are going to get compensated less if we have this Medicare for all system. Um, and it's just, it's not true. Um, large, yeah, I would recommend you go, if you haven't already listened to the podcast 1619 from the New York Times, um, I think it's like episode three or four. Uh, and it really goes into how the racist history of the fight against single payer and how, um, there really is that um, you know, there is there is somewhat of a racist racist history behind it, and how African Americans were actually leading the charge towards single payer, and much of the opposition was um, was fueled by white nationalism too. To conclude, what is that think the AMA really sees itself as part of for greed rather than for people in the healthcare system? It's very, it's a minority of doctors who are even members of the especially the mom. Um, but the important thing that um, he's part of the student um, chapter of um, Students for National Health Program actually had a demonstration at the AMA about a month ago in which they said, Get out of the um, coalition that you're part of, which is pharma um, and insurance company AMA, AMA against Medicare for all, and actually they withdrew the AMA from that demonstration. So there's ways that struggle against very bad conditions they take. And the other thing about the National Health Program um, in England, they just, I was in um, England and other parts of, of that. Um, I was speaking with some Welsh doctors, very well known, about being part of the NHS and when it started and everything. What he said was, what it did do was it absolutely changed the consciousness of doctors as well as other people in the healthcare system, where they then understood that who should have healthcare, which is sort of what the problem is that everyone here describes sort of in thoughts, um, that that's not our ideology. Basically, he said that the concept of a socialist tradition of everybody should just get care um, and that that should be the priority was then accepted by all physicians, whether they decided to also make money doing some other you know, sort of black market private company things or not. The consciousness that changed was just so important. That's, I think, what you know our job is in terms of examples that have been given. The defense of the VA, you know, outrage at people dying from not available. And 
or standing with um, immigrants in terms of getting help and, and thinking of alternatives that we have, you know, stuff in our tool. That they say that like that it changes their relationship with them. what to do with their patients. They want to. They want to insurance company Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's clearly bad faith. But like, if you bring up that argument, that's the response. I'll just give a tiny example. My doctor prescribed physical therapy for me. Issue. The insurance company says once a week for eight weeks. She said, Well, the doctors think when they write this prescription that the insurance company will agree. So I guess she thought the doctors don't even know that. I wanted to also make a comment about some of the things that we can, especially in Massachusetts. The three of our Congress people have not signed a single deal like you know. We always think of Massachusetts being a blue state and very progressive, but we have some hold up. One is in your part of the state, Neil, as in Simon. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, <laughs> Seth Morton, which is a southern. And then our very own, if you live in this area, you, your congressperson may be Stephen Lynch. And uh, there's, a, you know, there's not only PNHP that work on that, but there's a, you know, um, local organization, Massachusetts organization, you can get like a weekly newsletter and they tell you what's going on and I'll you encourage you and I'll try to get the specific information, but there's a lot you can do and I know they've met the Lynch had a town hall in Braintree and they came in force, but so far it hasn't borne any fruit, but I think, you know, this morning we talked about electoral politics and that's one area, you know, if we could get there entire Massachusetts delegation, but uh, I think, you know, Lynch could be moved and maybe Bill, I don't know him as well, but, uh, and even Moulton, so just keep the pressure on them, and, uh, you know, if you are in the district, go and visit with them, with, uh, with other you know, healthcare providers or whoever may have, uh, you know, some better voice, so think about that. Majority of the um, Democratic caucus in the House supports the House bill at this point. Um, so it's not some fringe bill, it is the majority of the caucus. Yes. Yeah. Well, I was just going to add to what you were saying. I think I was at that town hall with Steve Lynch. Yeah. And I think he's beyond persuasion. I think he just has to be. No, at least some of these guys just have to get rid of. Yes, you know, that's like, another Because exactly. some are, you know, open to more information. To, to knowledge, to you know, public pressure and gaining you know yeah. insight, and others are just totally intractable and just have to be thrown out of office. I think that's a problem. Question, I guess. Dan. So I, I don't know if it's a question or just that you said about how that's working really well and he has stretching money right. out and. Right. I would imagine this is part of the campaign to show that it doesn't just it's, like we see our public schools being underfunded and then exactly. failing. Exactly. So it's, it's part of the, the system, sort of disaster capital. Oh, well, in, look, look, this is being a show that's not working by taking all the funding away. This, this is exactly right. And surprisingly, this is being funded by the Coke Front. 
They have said uh, well, one of them's gone now. One of them's gone. But they have set up a AstroTurf um, organization, veterans organization. I don't know if you all know what AstroTurf is. Phony. Phony. Phony grassroots. Yeah. Right? In other words, uh, you, you send out a survey to all the veterans and say, do you like vanilla ice cream? Yes, I like vanilla ice cream. You know, do you like chocolate also? Yes, right? So then you can say, well, we've contacted veterans and we've worked with veterans. <laughs> and so now you have a grassroots organization that is not a grassroots organization. So if you ever hear the term concerned veterans of America, that is the Koch brothers, AstroTurf, and they have had a lot of influence on what policy has been towards the VA. That's part of it to just do just exactly what you're saying. Take money away from it so they are they have no choice but to fail. It's a great system. What you were saying, you don't as a veteran, once you get accepted, you don't worry about health care. You have the best health care I think in the world, right? And it's all integrated health care. They all know about veterans. They all know about the problems. And uh, it's it's fantastic, amazing. Uh, I get my senior care help at Mass General, which is not terrible. But when I go with Dan to the VA and ask the doctors about what they're worried about, I think you. Um, I'm sorry to catch your name, Doctor here. Um, the culture of the VA is that they say when someone comes in, we don't have to see dollar signs, we don't have to think about dollar signs. We just, it's just right. personal. That's what I'm talking about. Right, and that they're worried that they're going to lose that as the money is. So different when you go there from anything else. I have a handout here if anybody's interested. There's a, a friend of ours, uh, Susan Gordon. She's from originally yeah. from Brookline. Okay, there. other people know Susan. She has wrote, written two great books on the veterans' health care systems and the attempts, what they're doing to privatize it. And so I have a link to her website, her book, and also a Veterans uh, Policy Institute, which is also about veterans' health care. And um, in terms of sharing information, Lara, do you have any suggestion of uh, good places for people to, to get information because it's changing, and then also, if people can join that network that you created, what, yeah. what it takes so, to... So, I don't know if there's chocolate here, but um, yeah. first, we have a website, which is, yes, um, a little outdated, but um, the, I would just say two websites. I mean, if you're interested in knowing more about the public charge stuff, um, I would check out www.protectingimmigrantfamily. Um, they have up-to-date information. Um, it's just productivemigrantfamilies.org. Um, I would say also the Mirror Coalition. Mm -hmm. They're just miracoalition.org. Yeah. I mean, in Massachusetts, they have lots of information. Um, and then my group is agelessly.org. It's the health and law. And there's a link there to join our email list. You know a position list. Um, 
would be interested in being. And we organize educational events. And we're also happy to come and do trainings for different clinics. And the mass organization is just for mass care. So if you like, put that on mascare.org. And they have a newsletter and they give you a breath of action going on. That's a good source of it. I love when the strong progressives or leftists go on Fox News and just crush them. <laughs> and it's rare because, you know, they, they get you. But Adam Jackman. Adam is so great. Now, I mean, there's this Fox News segment where his leader, PNHB, destroys five conservatives <laughs> single handedly. <laughs> by himself, just crushes them one by one. the PNHB website. Yeah. And I have never seen such. Just a tour de force on Fox News by anybody on our side. He just relentlessly shredded them. And anyone who's watching that, who's sort of a fair-minded person, you know, would watch it and say that, wow, they're all full of shit. This guy, <laughs> Medicare for All sounds good. You know what I mean? So I what think we need more um, moments like that. It's Adam Gaffney, G-A-F-N-Z-Y. He's the president of PNHP this year. And he just did a phenomenal job. He's been on a lot of shows. That was great because it was. Yeah. And he won. Another comment I would make, I would like to make, is that I think at another occasion I really would like to bring up the issue of whether we have single pay or not. But it's going to always be at this point a disparity. And I find in my job what's really frustrating is in COVID, only a small part has to do with healthcare. Delivery, a lot of it has to do with living conditions. So I see every day where I work people who don't have housing, uh, who live in shelters, not you know, the, the image of a homeless person by families, or, or you see people who, I mean, there's so many other things that people don't have that, um, you know, whether you have single pay or not, that's not going to change. So I think it's like a really a, a motivation for getting involved and, in, you know, as a socialist in changing. I don't know if there's any further comment. We are almost at the end of our session. I don't know if you've got time or whatever. There's another great uh, feminism for the 99th. That's going to be a planning session coming after this. So, or can stay. I'm not sure. Imagine it's in the bigger or the other. Thank you. This was a great panel. Yeah,